Hi everybody and welcome to the South Summit podcast. South Summit is a platform that accelerates the global entrepreneurial community. And here's a space where we get to go deep with some of the thought leaders from that industry discussing the trends and the technology that are shaping our world today. I'm Liz Fleming and I'll be guiding you through some of these conversations. Very excited for you to join us. Staying with Everywhere Ventures, we now have Scott Lahartley for you, who was co-founder of the fund and also author of The Techie and the Fuzzy, where he takes a deep look into the importance of humanities when looking at the world of artificial intelligence. I leave you with our very own Joe Haslam to go deeper into this topic. I hope you enjoy. Okay, so Scott, uh, welcome to Spain, welcome to South Summit. Uh, you have been a runaway bestseller, not quite, uh, but a surprisingly runaway bestseller, which of course you can attribute to your translator to do all the work. Exactly. Uh, but so uh, I guess, so let's talk about this, and this in particular this idea of the liberal arts ruling the digital world. Uh, what's fascinating about it is that Spain, along with a lot of other European companies, there really is a, a, a specific definition. You're either like, you know, a fuzzy or a techie or a you know, a number, an Excel jockey, or else you're someone who writes poetry. Um, and uh, just reading your book, you you know, you used, which I knew it was coming somewhere, the whole C.B. Snow thing, right, of, you know, the third culture and all that kind of stuff. So uh, I guess the first thing is, how did you get interested in, in the third culture and, and this kind of, like, uh, break between art and science? Well, first of all, thanks for having me here. It's great to be back in Spain at South Summit. Um, I think for me it was one part autobiographical. It was one part the fact that I had studied political philosophy, political theory, yet ended up at places like Google and Facebook and on Sand Hill as an investor. And often it was people in my own family saying, you work at Google, I thought only engineers work at Google. What do you possibly do there? Do you run behind when I search on the computer and do you pull out the file cabinets and pull out the search results and give them to me? That must be what you do because you're not an engineer writing the code. And so part of it was autobiographical, and then part of it was looking at the narrative um, that was basically endemic on Sand Hill Road, particularly with uh, you know large investment firms like Andreessen Horowitz, Coastal Ventures, where I heard this sort of trope about STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math being sort of the antidote to irrelevance in the future. And if you studied computer science, you were somehow going to have this carte blanche ticket to the future that was, uh, was perfect and, and blissful. And then you look at the internal teams of those people and you say, well, actually, you know, Peter Thiel is one of the best investors in the Valley. He's a philosopher. Reid Hoffman is somebody that everybody looks up to. He's a philosopher. Stuart Butterfield, who is on top of the world at Slack, also a philosopher. Susan Wojcicki running YouTube was a history and literature major. And I sort of looked around the Valley and I said, this narrative of STEM, STEM, STEM is a little bit at odds with a lot of the people finding great success as entrepreneurs running these businesses. There's a counterintuitive truth here that is that the two cultures lecture that you, you referenced, which comes from 1959, Charles Percy Snow at Cambridge University, this debate that we think is outdated, that sciences versus the humanities, and all we had done is changed the names to AI versus ethics and big data versus bias. And you know, all of these words had changed, but the basic debate was one versus the other. And so I think looking back at C.P. Snow, looking at sort of this major that had been developed at Stanford in the 70s that was called symbolic systems, which is basically a mixture of philosophy, psychology, computer science, um, and linguistics, 
that had put out all of these people like Scott Forstall, who created iOS, that had put out people like Mike Krieger, who created Instagram, again, Reid Hoffman, uh, just a number of incredible entrepreneurs. And you look beneath the surface and you say, these people have a little bit to be dangerous on the tech side and a lot to be dangerous on the human side. They have the charisma, the storytelling ability, this ability to fundraise, to sell somebody on their vision. Um, and all of these soft skills, all these characteristics are really what drives entrepreneurship. And so I think for me, you know, again, one part autobiographical, but really one part sort of empirical, sitting on Sand Hill Road, talking to thousands of entrepreneurs, looking at who is actually achieving success, and overwhelmingly seeing that the people that just had the technical skills were not achieving success. It was actually the people with the tech and the fuzzy that were achieving success. Yeah, I mean, the, the two, you, the list that you went through, the other two that you could mention is that Marissa Meyer talking about her mother, the art teacher, you know, which yeah. is she famously goes on about. And also Paul Graham, you know, famously was a sort of like before he had anything to do with Y Combinator, he was writing books about art history and, mm -hmm. and things like that. So they were very much uh, interesting. And I mean, one of the things about STEM, it's not just in the Valley. You, you find that in a lot of places that they, they talk about, like, you know, engineers ultimately build people and, and then, you know, poets just sort of write stuff. But but what's really interesting is um, in an AI world that philosophers, you know, are suddenly this kind of heavily valued, um, you know, valued thing to do. Um, but of course, the, the problem, um, or well, it's not really a problem, but it, it's a sort of uh, the, um, wh wh like, where, you know, where do you go if you do, like, you know, philosophy and, and sociology and these kind of things, um, you know, is that really a good career choice for somebody? Yeah, you know, I think one of the really interesting um, things that I've observed is uh, people have this inability to sort of leapfrog from degree title to job title. We understand that engineer as a degree title equates to engineer as job title, and it's very easy to see that linear relationship. We fail to make the leap that philosopher as degree title often means hedge fund manager, uh, entrepreneur, CEO as job title, right? It doesn't necessarily mean Marco Rubio had said that the market for philosophers out there is thin. Uh, you don't want to study philosophy. You know, to your point, when you think about um, automation and artificial intelligence and AI, I often go back to the debates in the 50s between Marvin Minsky and J.C.R. Licklider where those letters are flipped around where we think about not just artificial intelligence but intelligence amplification, so the IA in the fact that all jobs are actually made up of lots of different tasks and that what AI is really doing is taking away some of those tasks that are highly repetitive and automated and routine. And what it's really doing is it's upskilling the person. Imagine you had 100 tasks in your job, 20 of them are routine, and 20 of them can go away to Sam Altman and OpenAI and uh, automated tasks. What does that do? It leaves 80 tasks left for the human and the space the mental space, the mental capacity to now do different things on those other 20 tasks, which means that you suddenly upskill, you uplevel, and the skills that become very necessary are asking the right questions, to think critically, to sort of frame the debate, uh, to push back, um, to becoming the editor, not the person pecking out the keys on the typewriter, right? And so those are the things that I think we've unlocked with, um, you know, with AI and with, with IA that are, are going to change the future, but they're really empowering, and I, I tend to be an optimist when I think about those things. Yeah. One of the things, though, and I worked in Silicon Valley for a while, is, is this notion of regression, you know, which you typically don't find among philosophers. You know, it's not known whether Plato had a good right cross, you know, 
But uh, and that's one of the things actually about the British education system, which often does philosophy. They you know they teach Latin and Greek, and they study the great you know the the sort of the you know Ovid and the Aeneid and these kind of tales of triumph and the man and that kind of stuff. Uh, to what level do you attribute success in Silicon Valley to be aggressive? Because that's certainly something that you know they you try and get growth as quickly as possible because there's not a natural connection between you know philosophy is often thought as like Epicureanism and Stoicism and these kind of things. Well, how much how important is aggression in, in success? You know, I think there's a quote that Stuart Butterfield has said as a two-degree philosopher, you know, who obviously sat at the helm of, of Slack and had multiple successes before that. His games companies are very good, actually. Yeah, his but... game, games company that, that pivot their way into, yeah. uh, you know, corporate communications I invest platforms. in all of Stuart's games companies, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Tiny Spec had a great, a great <laughs> run there. Um, you know, but he talks about and attributes uh, the sort of philosophical inquiry, whether it's stoicism or consequentialism, whatever you're kind of delving into, is there aren't direct right answers. You know, if we were to debate John Stuart Mill versus Immanuel Kant, uh, you know, there's maybe your, your perspective, my perspective, and we could arrive at some happy medium. But as we would debate that, we would sort of feel our way through the dark and get to some approximation of a good answer, right? And when you think about entrepreneurship, there is no linear path to success. As you mentioned with, you know, Tiny Speck becoming Slack, um, he didn't start out that way, nor did eBay as a, you know, Pez dispensing company, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so all of these entrepreneurial endeavors are people feeling their way through the dark with a team trying to arrive at an approximation of the right answer, which is product market fit, market desirability, all these things. And so the skill set of being able to sort of feel your way through the dark and grapple with ambiguity I think is a fundamental skill of a good entrepreneur. And how do you train that skill? One way is sort of training resilience. Um, you know, asking somebody, hey, you have 15 seconds, give me your third best idea, is a hard question, right? Mm -hmm. your, first, your first best isn't gonna work. Your second best is way too expensive. Your third best is the one that might actually work. That whole experiment in um, feeling your way through the dark is, is very much sort of akin to philosophy. Sure. Um, a, a huge criticism that's made, and actually when Sam was on stage and I was interviewing him, I, I kind of felt I had one tough question I could ask him before I could feel the room saying, this is a guest and you, you have to be nice to him. But the one question I asked him was, you know, the sense in which these great Silicon Valley companies have been a negative, you know? And the, the criticism is, you know, talking about teenage depression and, and electoral kind of, you know, issues and, and, and those sort of things. But one of the things is that, you know, he, the, the defense of, of Mark, which is, people by Nick Clegg and others, is that, you know, he just, he became a CEO at 19, you know, he didn't really have any kind of, uh, you know, how could he possibly know about the world and that kind of stuff, you know? So that's a sort of, um, I mean, what have we learned from that? And I'm, I'm, I'm including you as part of Silicon Valley in this, yeah. uh, even though you live in New York, but it's this notion of like, what have we learned from the first wave of those companies and the negative, I mean, obviously they have brought positive things in terms of allowing people to find people you needed to sell to and things like that. But what have we learned uh, in terms of the first wave of those companies as we prepare for the AI world? It's a great question. I, I think two lessons are uh, scale and speed in the sense that in the wave, the, the last wave with, with Zuckerberg and with Facebook, I think we learned the lesson of true scale. And I think Tristan Harris has spoken at length about this um, in both the Netflix documentary, but also in his work in, in TED Talks, where you see sort of the decisions happening in one room with a set of, set of people with often very similar backgrounds, very similar socioeconomic status. 
making decisions about pixels, but those decisions have implications on time well spent, right? And that time well spent could become, you know, uh, something that nudges you left or nudges you right, and could become the sort of slot machine, uh, one-fingered bandit in your pocket that is your cell phone that steals but away your time. Tr Tristan is coming big time for Sam. You know, he he didn't he lost out. He was a sort of influential, but but you know, kind of lost the war in terms of the first wave and. Uh, but so he's coming much more. I mean, the letter really—he was kind of behind that in yeah. terms of the moratorium and stuff like that. So, you know. But I mean, I want to push you in terms of, like, no one wants to be the the, the guy who takes away the punch bowl at the party. No one wants to be those kind of guys. But you know, and and people like Sam are pushing this nerve. The AI is inevitable. You know. So how do we somehow get people to think that, like, in the same way that there has to be limits on some things? I mean, Sam, the one thing he did agree. With with was like nuclear controls and things like that. You yeah. don't have automatic the right to make a nuclear, a dirty bomb or something like that. So, I mean, is there really anything that you're perceiving among, you know, your generation and investors that, listen, we, we, we got, um, you know, we, we, the, while Facebook had great scale and exponential technologies and the power, that AI, especially coming up to the point where AI could make its own intelligence, you know, at that stage, you really, you, from what I'm sort of getting, that you, you'd think there's awareness of it, but there isn't really determination to say that we need to put guardrails in. Well, I think guardrails come in the form of data and data protection and privacy, because the AI feeds off of data, right? So it starts at the data level. And I think one thing that is interesting is there is a race to public data, right? So you have the Googles, the Microsofts, the Teslas, all the chasing, you know, both proprietary data sets and whatever's out there, eating it up as fast as possible. I think what's interesting, I had a debate with um, uh, an entrepreneur in our portfolio. So at Everywhere Ventures, we have 250 companies that we've invested in over the last five years. One of the companies we've invested in, we were debating sort of human intelligence over the last thousand years versus you know machine intelligence. And he was making the argument that if you take a person out of context, if you take them out of the data pools that we learn from, and you drop them in the jungle and you said, live a life of 80 years, that person might be able to figure out how to build basic tools or build basic fire, but they certainly wouldn't have the level of intellect as we do being part of a large data set, being able to learn on training data, which is society, right? So if we think about human general intelligence is at a societal level. Human intelligence in an individual sense um, is fairly isolated and maybe not that different from what it was 100 years or 1,000 years ago. So I think thinking about AI, if we get to artificial general intelligence, I think we'll get there as a, at a societal level across all of these different platforms, all these different data sets. But really, you know, it comes down to, you know, I think you go to Germany and there's much heavier data protections. You know, maybe they swing too far to one side versus the other. But I think there will be a plurality of AIs that grow up. Right now, we're heavily focused on, on open AI and a few of the big ones. But there will certainly be, I think, very, very specific AIs that are vertical specific in an aggregate. We may get to this general intelligence, but the general intelligence will be across fragmentation of data, and, and that comes down to, I think, controlling data and privacy. So you know what I'm getting <laughs> from you, Scott? Because you're well-read, erudite, you know, done all these things, and you still kind of, you know, are optimistic, and we'll all get there. So what chance would I have a, with some sociopath that's in Silicon right now that would just sell his grandmother to be the next billionaire? Because I don't see you, I see you're kind of interested in the debate, but I, I mean, what would it get for you to sort of just to stop everything you're doing and, 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 and become much more kind of activist about the whole, this whole, about the future? 
I tend, I tend to see, you know, having been in venture for, for 12 years, uh, people kind of overestimate where the world is going, and the reality is much more boring. Um, it, could be, it could be that I'm completely wrong, and the world will change much more quickly than it has in the past. But uh, looking back, you know, 10 years ago, there was a gentleman who came and pitched us on Sand Hill Road, this uh, company that had to do with taking an iPad and a piece of plastic and swiping the plastic on the iPad, and we didn't invest in this company because we said the whole world is moving to this new framework of NFC, of near-field communication, oh, yeah. where you're going to walk into a room, put your groceries in a bag, and walk out of the store. So while we passed on this investment to think about where NFC was going, you know, Jeff Bezos and Amazon are still working on that 15, 20 years later, this guy named Jack Dorsey built Square and built a $100 billion company, right? And so these interim technologies that people discount, discount, discount become these large opportunities. So kind of thinking about it as an investor, I'm less interested in sort of the long run doomsday scenario that I think the headlines in the in you know love to love to talk about. And I'm more interested in these interim opportunities. So when we when we think about future of work or when we think about automation or AI, it's not sort of the what's gonna end the world. It's within a set of tasks, um, what are the specific tasks that could be automated and where do we invest in a business that's doing one of those small things? So I think it's it's more of a tactical question, I guess, than a broad-based yeah. strategic And it's answer. also, I think, reflects to where you are in your life. I mean, you're still very much in the game, you know? You're, you're, you see yourself as yeah. being in the game and part of building the next great set of, of companies. You Hopefully. Know? I mean, yeah. or, or at least playing defense against the ones that, to your point, to your point <laughs> well, you know, that, don't, uh, don't, that, don't, don't, don't move the world forward. You know, we have a very world-positive thesis where we invest in great people and we really do our homework to try to back um, you know, well-meaning, well-intentioned founders that, uh, again, comes back to you know, the fuzzy and the techie and thinking about um, my role as a venture capitalist is really a psychologist. And I think of myself a lot in that framework where I'm evaluating human motivations and I'm having genuine conversations with real people to try to understand what they're building, why they're building, and where they want to go with that. Versus, um, you know, I think as an entrepreneur, you're often, you're telling a story, you're selling a narrative, and you're almost on stage. You're a theater arts major, right? Yeah. And so this whole, um, yeah, very much in the game, but we, we really look to, you know, to back those kind of great people that, um, that we think are going to move the world forward yeah. in a positive way. Uh, you know, I, I say that to my students all the time, that, that it's, a, it's about how you make the investor feel, you know, that you got to just literally, most investments, because the investor believes you'll run through walls. That's yeah. basically where it comes to. Because, and then, and they, they, they uh, you know, people are like, you know, making their PowerPoints better and stuff like that. I'm like, no, no, no. You need to work on, you know, the, the image you give off in the room, which sort of says, like, there is, uh, you know, and I'm like, if you're asked, is there anything else in the world you'd rather be doing, that is a, like a buying question. And you look yeah. across the thing and you said, absolutely not. You know, this is the only thing of which I'm obsessed about, whether yeah. that's like, you know, back office uh, software for like, and a, you, a, you, you know, you, can, you can feel that passion yeah. and that authenticity. Right? Yeah. And when you feel it, you say, gosh, I don't know if it's going to work, but I know that that person is not going to quit. Yeah, and that's that's the game of you know sticking with something for five or, or ten years, and that's I think as particularly early stage investors, we're, we're investing far more on emotion and on those aspects than we are you know we're we're really sort of uh, focused on 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 the aspects of of people and and psychology, and as you go deeper and deeper into growth stage investing, you're focused on metrics and and logic and rationality and KPIs, and not that we don't yeah. look at those things, but they they tend to fade into the background against the motivations, the grit, the perseverance that, that we've been talking about. But did you think about doing something other than making money? 
you know, I mean, you've continued on that path. You've, you've, you know, stellar list of things behind you. You know, how much money does anyone need? I mean, it, it, it disappoints me slightly as a thoughtful person that you're, you know, there was a famous, uh, I think, I forget his name, it's like Jeff Crom Hammer or something. He was an early engineer in Google, and he said, the best minds of my generation are teaching people how to click on ads, you know? And yeah. it was like, you know, I, I just look at you, I read your book, and I, you know, a bit about you, and it just disappoints me that you're just like, all the rest of them, you know. Well, I, try, I try not to be. Yeah, yeah, but you're like, you know, you just come in. I think I think a lot of a lot of a lot of investors, you know, uh, are are pretty. Uh, you know, I, we think of ourselves at least at Everywhere Ventures as we're the black sheep of the black sheep. I mean, we we didn't fit in, uh, you know, on Sandhill. We didn't. We we're trying to build a global pre-seed venture fund um, that's rooted as a founder community of of 500 founders and operators to to give back to those founders and operators. And I'd say, uh, you know, writing books is, is tricky. It's it's tough, but I, and I hope in the future I'm able to put something else down on paper. Yeah, but it, yeah, it's a sort of the idea. I mean, I get that, and everyone always says they're the black. As a business school, we say we we call ourselves an unusual school for unusual people. You know, and for me, I'm much interested in a guy who tried to be a tennis pro. You know, from 16 to 24, and realized he was never going to crack the top 50, and therefore, you know, I find that to be a really interesting person rather than somebody who like got straight A's in anything they've ever done. Yeah. So that was a sort of a, a direction we've gone, um, and it's certainly true that there are companies. Uh, that only you would back. I mean, could you think that that's a fair categorization? I mean, when you're having your partner meetings, you mm -hmm. probably have the standard that everyone has like one company that even if the other partners refuse to back it, that you, you have like whatever, it's like your, your free shot. I mean, do you think there are companies that only you guys would back? I think, you know, we're one of the very few pre-seed global funds out there. I think we do a, a fair bit with Hustle Fund. That's another one. Um, but, you know, we're currently closing on investments in Southeast Asia and Egypt. Um, I do think that there is a gap in the market to fund great founders in some of those those places. Um, yeah, you know, but I, I, overall, uh, you know, we're trying to we're trying to deconstruct venture capital when we think about three waves of, of venture. You know, I think that there has been an inflection point over the last few years of these tools, you know, partially built by Stuart Butterfield and others. Um, that have enabled sort of this distributed ability to crowdsource and, and do things in a, in a broad-based way. And, you know, wave one venture capital was sort of the traditional GP, LP structure. Wave mm -hmm. two, I think, Andreessen pioneered with with the sort of uh, agency, said, yeah. agency model of a thousand services. Yeah, you know. he ripped off the agency model. Yeah, he took the CAA, <laughs> WME playbook yeah, yeah. Uh, from LA and brought it up to the Valley. And I think wave three that we're starting to see a bit of and, and we're kind of pushing on is, is really sort of founder-oriented, um, community-based venture capital. Sure. Um, okay. And, uh, you know, we, we think that that's different and, and more founder-friendly. Sure. Yeah, actually, I get I get you much better, having explained it that way. I mean, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And one thing Sam said when he was here, uh, actually, was that he said that some of the biggest uses of ChatGDP are in Nigeria and places like that. He said, because, you know, their delta is so much more, you know, which is to say that we can make things a bit better, but, you know, they have a, a lot of things to do. Um, well, listen, I've really enjoyed my talk, but the rules of the game say 20 minutes and 20 20 minutes, 20 minutes only, you know, it. so, we gotta follow the, uh, so the what I got to do is, is pass over to my producer who has something else for you. Yes, I do. Scott, uh, this is a much lighter and a personal question than the conversation you've had with Joe so far. And we've had the privilege to also talk with your co-founder, Jenny Fielding, today. And uh, she, uh, we asked her to like ask a question or give us a question to ask you. Uh, and her question is, this, you just moved to L.A. and... Uh, 
what are the difference uh, the differences between the east and the west coast and also she said why well, you left us <laughs> <laughs> well i'd say once once a new yorker always a new yorker so i, I don't feel like i've ever left new york um i think you know what environments that you're in really change the the way that you live your life and i think that new york is an incredible place to build network and to build uh, because of the density it's low transaction costs to meet a, a bunch of creative great people i think la um, is a place with more white space to kind of pursue the passions and the ideas that you have and so if you've kind of moved to a place of uh, greater independence or greater interest in pursuing your own platforms rather than sort of being around the buzz of the city uh you know at least for me that was an appealing um, aspect, not to mention, you know, the beauty of just uh, the hikes and the flora and the fauna and, and the beach. Uh, you can't discount the weather, so. And last thing, Scott, uh, we'd like you to give us a question for the next guest. It's, it has to be a surprise because we still don't know who that's going to be. The next guest. Um, I would say, you know, do you think that the liberal arts can rule the digital world? And if so... Um, how? Okay, that's perfect. That's perfect. Okay, uh, thank you so much. I always do, I mean, it's a bit of a thing, but I always do appreciate you coming here and appreciate you speaking to us and giving us your time. And, uh, and we always find it uh, interesting to do that. So thank you most sincerely for giving us your time. Likewise. And also, I also like to thank the technical staff who put all these podcasts together, you know. Always like these guys to, to get a mention. So uh, this is uh, Professor Joe Hasm from IE Business School. And I'm at South Summit Madrid. And I hope the community will uh, find this uh, discussion interesting. Uh, that's me over and out. Thank you so much. There you have it, almost a battle of the titans between our wonderful Joe and our dear Scott Hartley. Thank you for joining us on this episode. We'll see you shortly at the South Summit podcast. Don't forget, you can hop back to some previous episodes where we go deep diving with thought leaders from the world of tech and entrepreneurship. Stay in touch with us on our socials and you can look back at a whole bunch of South Summit events on our YouTube channel. See you soon.